Welcome to Solutions from the Huddle, powered by Collaborative Solutions Group. We're discussing meaningful business and life topics to add motivation to your life and value to your efforts. Our show is hosted by certified professional CSG coaches who are often hired for private coaching, corporate training, and speaking engagements. Now, enjoy the show. This is Solutions from the Huddle, and I am your host, Titus Bartolotto, you are tuned in to Solutions from the Huddle, powered by Collaborative Solutions Group. And friends, guess what? Like we have another incredible, uh, awesome, awesome guest for you that we're going to have a really fun interview around and you're going to get to learn some really cool stuff. If you are already a super big fan of the show, then we just want to say thank you for always tuning in and for being a part of uh, this journey. For those of you that are just tuning in for the first time ever, get your thank you notes already started for the friend that told you about the show. Go ahead and get it writing, uh, written out now because at the end of the show, you're going to know why folks keep tuning in um, and learning from so many wonderful entrepreneurs uh, and really special individuals that have learned uh, maybe sometimes the hard way um, and learned through success and education. And you're going to get to learn as well. Hey, before we get uh, started and introduce our guest for this episode of Solutions from the Huddle, we always like to start in prayer. So we'd like to do that this time as well. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would bless the show, our guest, uh, our sponsors, just everything involved in the show. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Uh, okay, friends. So today we have a new guest, a new friend of the show. Her name's Sandy Rodriguez, and you are going to fall in love with her. Uh, she's a former editorial coordinator for Mexican newspaper Reforma. And if you're not familiar with them, they you need to be because they're one of the most influential publications in Latin America. Now, one of the many things that Sandy's done is translated lots and lots of books from uh, English to Spanish for major publishing houses. I'll let her fill you in on some of the really cool authors that she's worked with. But today, in, a, in addition to being just a brilliant mind, she's also an author in her own right. And she has penned a paper, the book called Choose to Prevail. I cannot wait to introduce our guest, our new friend, Sandy. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. And I'm very excited to be on your show, which I love, I have to say. Oh, thank you. I love it. Thanks so much for being here. Listen, I want to get right into it. And I have lots and lots of cool questions, but I always try to start off with tell everyone your journey, because there's nothing more just beautiful about life than, than listening to someone explain to you, uh, like, here's where I started and here's how I got to where I am today. And for the folks that already don't know you and haven't read your, your bio and all your great, great accomplishments, give us a little insight about who you are and where you came from, Sandy. Oh, absolutely. Well, as you were mentioning, I used to be an editorial coordinator for a major newspaper, major Latin American newspaper, probably one of the most influential ones um, uh, in that part of the world. And I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic job. I made a lot of money. I was very influential. I was uh, very successful. I was hired uh, to, I was initially hired as a co-editor for the fashion section and the food section. And over the course of the years that I was there, I quickly, quickly, quickly moved up through the ranks. And I ended up doing just so many very, very interesting things, including uh, meeting all kinds of A-listers, 
including meeting all kinds of fascinating people. I mean, I couldn't have been happier. But here's the thing, Titus. I was doing this to the exclusion of everything else. Uh-oh. Everything else. I mean, and it's not, I mean, I literally had no time beyond the time that I was uh, working. I was physically in the newsroom uh, 14, 15, 16 hours every day or more. And when you're a journalist or in media, and surely you can certainly relate to this, you're kind of always on the clock because let's say that it's your, not even your lunch hour, but your lunch 20 seconds or, you know, whatever the case may be, maybe you're about to fall asleep and you were listening to something on TV. And for whatever reason, you learned that there's some kind of breaking news, somebody died, something happened, uh, something was uh, unveiled. Okay, if there's any kind of breaking news, you need to get on it. You need to either head back to the newsroom or you need to make some phone calls. So in any case, I mean, I didn't mind because I loved it. But the reality is that I really did miss out on pretty much every other potential human experience that one might have had. And it was almost as if I had been under suspended animation throughout the many years that I was there because I was doing that and only that during that time. I very rarely saw any of my very best friends, uh, let alone anything like dating or anything like that. Absolutely not. A number of things that people might take for granted was uh, something that was just not available to me. And toward the end of my time there, and I spent there several years, I was there for over a decade and a half, I underwent a number of personal issues that were very trying. I lost my father, I lost my younger brother, and uh, several other things of that nature that made me think, okay, I need to uh, do something else. Even though I'm super happy here, even though I love it here, I need to do something else because otherwise I will be very fulfilled career-wise, but I think that I will miss out on a lot of experiences that I don't want to miss. So I figured that I would like to move to a, a place that was more laid back. And it's not difficult to find a place that is more laid back than Mexico City, which is my former place of residence, uh, being that that is one of the largest cities in the world. Uh, so I thought Los Angeles could be a good choice because it's still a city and I'm a city person. I've lived um, in Mexico City. I've lived in Seoul and South Korea. I've lived in Philadelphia. And um, I thought that it would be a good idea because L.A. is also a city, while at the same time having a much more laid back vibe. So I thought, OK, that will be a good place to move to. And well, I ended up here. And initially, as you were saying, I was, let's say, uh, tracked down by many of the people that I had worked with over the years. And I was very fortunate in that I was asked to translate many, many books from English to Spanish. And this was fascinating, Titus, because no publishing house will ever commission a translation of a book that is not a proven bestseller. So every single book that I translated was a proven bestseller, and it was expected to do very well in the Spanish-speaking market as well. So because of that, I translated a number of books from authors that are widely successful. Uh, for example, Louise Hay, or um, uh, the person from the Conversations with God series, 
or um, just a number of people in many fields, self-help novels, medical books, business books. For instance, there was one with a foreword by Bill Clinton. There was another one with a foreword by the Dalai Lama. So in general, this was the caliber of books that I translated because that's the only kind of books that a publishing house will spend money on mm. getting translated. And I did that for a while. And I have to say that it was quite fascinating from um, a reader standpoint, because when you translate, it's almost like rewriting a book. It's quite interesting because as you can imagine, there might be plays on words, there might be poetry, they might be puns, all kinds of situations that cannot be translated literally, you know, so it becomes a very, let's say, intimate um, dive into the author's mind, and you're kind of impersonating the author in a sense, um, and doing it in a different language. So I thought that that was quite interesting from a, a reader and a writer standpoint for myself. And that was something that I started doing when I got here. Wow, uh, that is so cool and creative. I, I don't know that we've ever had a person on the program that has translated books. And you're so right. I mean, that, that sounds to be a, a highly intimate, very personal thing, um, you know, that I would imagine the author would have to feel comfortable about before his or her book is reissued, um, that maybe there weren't unwanted liberties taken uh, relative to his or her scope of meaning and and all those things. So the amount of trust that you must have uh, above and beyond just your acumen and skill uh, was clearly seen by by a plethora of organizations and individuals. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I don't believe necessarily that the author selects uh, his translator, his or her translator. That is done especially uh, that is something that is especially carried out with great care by the publisher rather than by the author. But I think that authors in general are just very thrilled to have their book reissued in other countries. It must be very exciting, I'm certain. But you're right in that publishing houses really, really handpick who is going to carry out this kind of a task. And it really is uh, a very... Uh, very much a collaborative effort in that, yes, you have the translator, but you also have a number of editors for that specific language. You also have somebody that is going to make sure that the words that are selected are um, appropriate for the specific country in which the book will be sold. Because maybe if I, let's say, let's say that I give, um, and this is not the case, but for example, a Venezuelan way of saying something and the book is meant to be sold in Mexico, they, they would need to make certain adjustments. But in the end, people are very, very happy with the finished result. And I have to say that I did that for a while, for a long while, once I moved here, and it was very fascinating. But I have to say that translating books is very, very hard on the body. Surprisingly, it's hard on the mind. It's certainly, it's a, it's a trying task, mm. but it's tremendously rough on your body. Let me explain why. I know it doesn't seem that it would be, but here's the thing: yeah, in order please. to trans, in order to translate, uh, let's say a medium-length non-fiction book, I think you would need to sit at your computer at least what ten hours a day for a month running, if not more, maybe two months running. So. 
you're doing repetitive motions. You're seated at a very specific angle. So at the very least, you might develop carpal tunnel. You might develop mm -hmm. neck issues, back issues, a number of things. And it's, it's very, very tough on the body. It really is. Even with more modern technology, such as voice-activated uh, dictation and such, it's still very, very rough on the body. So I was... Um, I loved it. It was very fun for me to see the finished product. And uh, normally you do get a translator credit on the credit page of a book. So that's also quite interesting, very cool. But um, the thing is that I really did need to find um, a normal job once I had moved here. And my experience, of course, had been in media and in publishing. And you know, Titus, the piece that, that at that particular point in time when I had moved here, um, it was a point in time when bloggers were becoming hugely popular and influential. And from a consumer, from a content consumer perspective, that was fantastic. But from a content creator perspective, not so much because there was less of an incentive uh, for companies to actually hire and pay people to create content that was uh, quality content and, and interesting to their viewers and readers. So when I got here, I was indeed invited to take part in a number of projects, uh, both video and written, um, and I enjoyed it. I did join in that kind of an activity. I edited a couple of magazines. I wrote a few articles. I did a few videos and all was good and well, but I did that just for fun and for the experience. But I did need to find uh, gainful employment. And what do you know? Something fell into my lap that I had never even considered. It wasn't even on my radar and it was truly a career path that I have fallen in love with and I would strongly recommend it to um, to your audience. And it was a career in court interpreting, which is something very specific. It's high responsibility, to some it might be high stress, but to be honest, it's just fascinating. The way it works is that during any kind of um, legal proceeding, might it be civil, it could be criminal, a person such as myself will be present in a courtroom. And if there is somebody present in the courtroom that does not speak English, it could be a plaintiff, it could be a defendant, it could be uh, a witness, it could be pretty much anybody there, somebody like myself will be present and we will let that person know every last thing that is said in the courtroom at all times by mm -hmm. anyone and vice versa, whenever that person is about to speak, we will render into English whatever the person is saying. And it truly is fascinating, especially because of one thing. I think this is the only activity that I have ever found that is truly done in real time. I can think of nothing of the sort except maybe being a sports announcer, perhaps, in which you do the activity then and there. And once you're done, you're done. You don't take anything home. You don't see the fruits of your labor in the future. Whatever mm -hmm. was to be done is done. So I think mm -hmm. it's quite fascinating that way. That is so fascinating. I mean, it seems like so much of what you've been able to contribute to the world is mastery of language, comprehension of meaning, and, and, and being multilingual. And I wonder, you know, I wonder for the entrepreneurs and the professionals, individuals and teams that might be listening to the show, how they can glean from that uh, and, and really unpack the importance of the ability to communicate 
the ability to understand someone's meaning. Really, it sounds like that's your gift. I mean, your ability to understand what someone means and to communicate in a way that's easy to be understood, right? Understanding seems to be at the core element here of, of what you're doing. And you've just found a way to do that in multiple languages. Thank you for pointing that out. I, I think that you're right. And I do think that I'm very fortunate in uh, knowing more than one language, which in today's world really and truly is something that is necessary. I have to say, when I was a little girl, let's be honest, uh, it wasn't a thing that was required here in the U.S. I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia myself on the East Coast. Um, I don't recall there being any need or any, let's say, urgency or even any enthusiasm from anybody here in, in the U.S. Um, in regard to learning a new language. But let's uh, be honest, the world has undergone uh, tremendous shifts over the previous years and even more so in more recent years. And I would say that right now it would be strange to only want to speak one language it would not seem very contemporary in my view. And I do see that a lot of people are making an effort to learn not necessarily Spanish. It could be Spanish, but it could very well be Mandarin. It could very well be French. It could very well be any language. And they're all quite useful for a number of reasons, one of which could be expanding your reach as a business person in case you have a, let's say, a small business of your own or you're looking to expand into a different country or just attract a new um Post of clients. That's definitely something to look into. And more to the point, uh, regardless of language or languages that you might get to speak, it also behooves, I think, everybody from any walk of life to learn how to put yourself in other people's shoes from a cultural standpoint, in a certain sense. Um, here's the thing. I used to think that it was a strange idea to do marketing for a very specific audience. Let's say I, in the past, I wouldn't have thought it necessary to let's say market something to the Latino market or market something to the Eastern European market and such, because in the end we're all Americans and we all have our uh, you know points of uh, where we do come together. And for example, in the book I wrote, I thought that it was important to make it accessible to anybody from any culture. And it is, I believe so. It's gotten great reviews from a number of, um, let's say, very different groups. For example, the Midwest book review gave it a very good review, but it was just very recently uh, also acclaimed by um, a Latino literacy groups. So these are like very, very contrasting uh, organizations and everybody can find value in that. So I see that at least personally, I think that I'd like to not necessarily mm. go into segmentation, but as a business, what I have seen is that maybe I've been, um, let's say not necessarily wrong, but I think some businesses are actually doing very well when they actually create a campaign geared toward a very specific audience. I'm thinking, for example, um, and if it's fine by you to, to give out specific names. 
Uh, I really liked this Netflix show from last uh, from the last couple of years. It used to be on YouTube, Cobra Kai. I really like it. And it did very well in Mexico. And what Netflix did is that Netflix created a specific advertising campaign for their Mexican audience for Cobra Kai. And certainly it doesn't take anything from the series. The series is a very same series. But the Mexican targeted um uh, you know, commercial was very cool. And I think that's something that companies can do, not necessarily have to like fully adapt their content for, uh, let's say, the other, because that would actually be a little bit um, a, a form of discrimination, perhaps, but at least try to make people feel included with something special for them, I think. Yeah, I love that. I, I want to talk a, a little bit more about how how you help people through your your body of work with with authoring uh, your book choose to prevail and and also if there are other ways or tips or tricks that you have to really um kind of master communication because i think it's so critically important i think we we get hung up on things like leadership and mindset and 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 sales but really all of those things are nothing more than communication right i mean mindset is just the conversation i have with myself and sales is the conversation i have with everyone else that I'm trying to get buy-in from to buy products and services. And leadership is nothing more than a conversation that I have between those and the, uh, that I, my, you know, those that I hope that will follow me. Um, so I'd love some tips and strategies from you. And I want to learn a little bit more about your book. I want to do that right on the other side of this quick break. I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors, our show partners, uh, these are some really incredible companies and organizations that continue to partner with us here at Collaborative Solutions Group and specifically Solutions from the Huddle. So if you have a, a moment, we encourage you to check out team-csg.com. That's team dash csg.com and take a look at some of the organizations that partner with us that support our mission in bringing really wonderful entrepreneurs and thought leaders and authors and people that have gone the way that maybe can help you figure out how to get the way. So companies like Speedy Oil Change, Easy Living Technologies, Novant Health, Carolina Auto Warehouse, and so many more. So again, visit team-csg. Dot com. Uh, we're talking with, with Sandy Rodriguez here. She is the author of Choose to Prevail. Uh, she has spent a, a large block of her life writing and communicating um, and doing so in more than one language. And Sandy, I want to know what are some tips and tricks maybe we might find in your book, uh, which is highly rated on Amazon, lots and lots of great reviews. Um, what are a few of the tips and strategies that you have for somebody, whether it be enhancing their communication skills or maybe just their overall mindset and inability to navigate around kind of the obstacles and woes that we we come across in our in our lives personally and professionally. Thank you so much, Titus. Well, yes, in my book, Choose to Prevail, I do mention a lot of tips for different things. It's a very wide ranging book with ideas for different uh, issues that people might be struggling with. And as you were mentioning, one of the most important things that people can develop is um, the gift of gap or ease of communication. This is something that is very important, regardless of whether you're a business owner or an employee or a CEO. And what I find is that interestingly enough, uh, more 
people than one would expect struggle with public speaking. I think it's probably the number one fear that people have, even if they're uh, very attractive physically, even if they're very intelligent, even if they are um, very successful, people do tend to be very scared of actually putting themselves out there. Now, one of the things that I mentioned in the book and I really strongly stress is the fact that we need to develop um, a way to avoid being concerned about uh, what people think once we step in front of the audience. We need to be less self-conscious so that we can be more natural and speak in a more confident manner. And the very best way to do that is to really realize that people aren't even looking. They're not even paying attention. They don't even care. And a way to think um, about that and see how true that possibly could be is looking back to a time when we went to say a sporting event or a concert, even if we were massively interested in this particular um, event, it's not like we're watching the quarterbacks every move or the batters every move or the lead singers every move every single second. And that's a situation in which we're actually very interested. We got tickets, we're there. But the reality is that every so often our mind wanders or we check the phone or we're going out for a snack or we talk with our companion. So people are not even paying that much attention. So uh, if, if that's um, something that can be considered a blow to the ego, well, that might be the case, but it's also something very freeing in the sense that we can confidently step up on a stage and if, even if we might mess up a little, it's fine. It, it's just not something that people will remember until the end of time. It's something that we can uh, at least initially get uh, on stage with that mindset so that we can feel more comfortable. And as time passes, we can start practicing more and more and more until we're actually seen because we want to be, because we're giving out compelling messages. But at least initially, it's good to know that people are not tremendously, you know, paying tremendous attention to everything that we say. And then in the future, we can just work on polishing our skills and then making them look at what we're saying. So yeah, at least yeah. initially, that's I think that's good. I read an, an article once, Titus, about uh, a psychological experiment in which people were made to walk outside with what they felt was a tremendously embarrassing t-shirt that said Barry Manilow fan. And people were so horrified saying, oh, no, 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 my friends will laugh. What will they say? Nobody even noticed. Yeah. So that's that's something to keep in mind. I mean, people are not out to get us. Why do you think we're so... Um... I want to word this the right way, but I mean, we're also really quite honest on the show. So may, maybe, maybe I'll just say it. Why are we so self-absorbed? And so, um, I mean, doesn't that create so much of our anxiety and stress and pressure? Cause we just think I'm so important <laughs> now. I mean, obviously we deal with low self-confidence, right? Many of us, but, but I mean, this arrogance or this air of just everything I do and say is so important. It's the center of everyone else's world. And then we come to find out like no one's really paying that much attention and we probably don't need to be so stressed out. Why do you think in the world, why are we that way? I think it's because we know ourselves so very well and we know so little about others that mm. we believe that that's kind of our situation, which also segues into something I mentioned in the book, which is why we should never be jealous of other people. Sometimes- come on. 
see, you know, sometimes we see people, and not even on social media, I mean, even in real life, right? We might say, oh, I, I don't know, I see a, a CEO of a company and I'm so jealous because they're so successful or then I see this other woman and she's a model and I would, be a, I would like to be a model myself or this other person with a fabulous marriage or the other person with a fantastic ripped abs or whatever the case may be. So we're like all oh, jealous of these people. But we really don't know what's going on with every aspect of their life. Um, so, for example, sometimes we, because we know everything that's going on with ourselves, we feel depressed because some aspects might not be going well. But that's probably the case for these people that we're seeing. Like maybe the person that has a successful job might also be struggling with substance abuse. Maybe the person with the fabulous marriage is also going through health issues. Maybe the person with the ripped abs has just uh, gone through a divorce. You never really know. It's, it's very hard to say. And the reality is that in everybody's life, there are aspects that are going well and aspects that are going poorly. Um, and it's interesting because sometimes we think that it's only on social media that we see the highlights, but that in real life we should get a more, uh, let's say, a more um, holistic picture of what people's lives are. But that's not really the case either. Not even with very, very close friends. We don't know every last thing about their lives as we do when it comes to ourselves. So we might be, you know, jealous of somebody else's life and that's not really something that we should do in fact there's a saying that if we were to put everybody's problems in a pile and take a look at what's there we'd want our own problems back yeah, i mean wow. that's that's what, that a, tends <laughs> what a great way to look at things too right i mean you, you know what i've come and sandy i'd love to know your input on this what i've come to know to be true in my life and some of the things that i tell my clients some of the things that I say from stages is this, um, you know, we, we oftentimes, um, we oftentimes make a mountain out of a thing. And, and the truth is we may do it because we have, we have not found comfort in, in calm or peacefulness. So like we almost sometimes have to like create this, drama filled mountain to overcome because like just sit we may say we want to sit on the the beach and sip a mai tai and just look at the ocean but the truth is like we wouldn't know what to do with that right because we're so comfortable with fifteen thousand things to do you, you started off saying you were so busy doing so many different things i feel like we train ourselves um to just keep making mountains out of things and to just keep weighing ourselves down um I, I would love would love to know your input on on if you think that's true. And then the last thing I, I say quite often that I would love to get your input on is um, is that you know if we stay curious, it's really hard to be judgmental. And so we 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 lack a, a sense of curiosity, and we are just constantly creating mountains. <laughs> and and sometimes the, the lack of curiosity might be the thing that creates the mountain. But those two things, I think, keep us from connecting and, and navigating all of these, these crazy moments. What do you, what do you think? Because you've seen it on lots of different sides of, uh, of the fence. 
I think so. Okay. So when it comes to, um, okay, the part about being, which one do you want to address first? Yeah. So give me the one about mountains. mountains. Or, okay, I, I mean, we, about- we are mountain creators all day. We're just making these okay. giant mountains. Absolutely. Well, in one of the chapters of the book, I do mention that it's very important to gain perspective. Um, Again, as I was mentioning, sadly enough, and I don't think that there are many exceptions to this, I think that in every single person's life, there is some degree of tragedy. At some point, something Mm -hmm. can truly be categorized as a tragedy, unfortunately, but I think that's the reality. Now, for example, I can look at my own life. Maybe I've had more tragedy in my life than some people or less than other people. But for example, I'm thinking, for instance, I had um, a very close female friend, my son's godmother, to be precise. Uh, One time she went on a fun trip to Egypt. While in Egypt, Egyptian forces confused, mistook her um, group for terrorists and bombed them down and killed them all. They killed them all. So, okay, that's tragedy. I mean, there's, I mean, that's a horrible thing. That's uh, something that shouldn't have happened. It's something really, really terrible. So I don't like to think about that all the time because it's just very tragic. However, for example, if I go to the supermarket and there's a long line, I can either curse the long line or think, okay, how does that stack up compared to what my friend went to? I mean, really, this is nothing. So, I mean, not to say that you need to focus only on the tragic at all times, but in reality, once you've undergone something really, really bad, minor annoyances become minor annoyances. You can see them for what they truly are instead of making the mountain out of the molehill. So not to say that um, there's something necessarily good to be gained from tragedy, but it does give you some perspective. That's something that I find very interesting. In fact, in the past, um, artists from different eras like to include something they call a memento mori in their paintings, which which could be a skull, rotting fruit, a timepiece, something that implied the passage of time. And memento mori is Latin for something similar to remember that you must die. And they didn't do that to be morbid or scare people or freak people out. They did that so that people could understand uh, a little bit more of um, perspective. They could get some more perspective. They could enjoy their life a little more knowing that there are actual tragedies and that life will soon end. It will end soon enough. So enjoy your time here and don't go around making mountains out of molehills. Uh, as yeah. minor annoyances and minor annoyances. Yeah, that's a great, no, I, I, I'm with you on that. Well, what about this stay curious thing? How do we get folks, especially in, in communication with, with different languages, you probably see this all the time where, you know, it's so easy to misunderstand each other uh, when, we, when we do speak the same language. It's so easy to be judgmental when we come from the same community and speak the same dialect. How much more important is it for us to slow down, pause, <laughs> And really pay attention so that we can not be misunderstood or misunderstand someone else. Curiosity has to be such an important part of communication. What do you think? I absolutely agree. And I think that it's a very good idea to make friends from other cultures, other demographics, other ages, other styles, other interests. In fact, conversations tend to be very dull if you're surrounded exclusively by by people that are exactly like you. 
Why? Because there's no discord, there's no room for debate, and there's no, there are no conflicting opinions. So let's say if you say, what do you think about this? And I think, oh, it's fine. And you say, yeah, I agree, it's fine. And we're like, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's nice. That's really dope. It's more interesting when people have something to say. And even if it's uh, not necessarily always being on the same page, I think it's very valuable. In fact, in the book, I, there, I included a, a chapter about something that I think is is in uh is very much in line with what you're saying and mm. it's about making friends of different ages i find that in today's society almost all forms of discrimination are very deeply frowned upon it's very very it's in poor taste to discriminate a person of a different uh, race or ethnicity or body type or uh let's say geographical origin or uh sexual orientation i mean there are a number of things that people should not or do not uh, mentioned much in this day and age. However, ageism, I think, is still alive and well. I mm. mean, even by being funny, you know how a couple of years ago people were uh, going on about the okay boomer thing, or they were calling millennials snowflakes and this and that. And I think, yes, it's kind of playful, but it's also kind of uh, aggressive. And it's also falling into stereotypes because you might assume, oh, everybody that's older is set in their own ways and they are not in touch with modern society and they surely are not tech savvy. And that's not only false, uh, because it really depends on the individual rather than on their age. But it also could lead to um, making things difficult in the work market for that group. So it's not mm. it's not good to go around saying that. And the other way around, if you go around saying, oh, yes, the millennials, Cs, uh, uh, Generation C and so on, they're so entitled, they're so lazy, they're so... That's also not entirely accurate because it does depend on the individual and it's also not good for them. So my perception is that there are more differences between individuals between uh, between individuals belonging to a specific group than between um, groups as a whole. So it's a very good idea to start making friends with people from all walks of life, all ages, all styles, all personality types. And it's really very enriching in, in many, many ways, so much more than if you were to stick with exclusively friends from your very own neighborhood that are also your same age and in your same line of work and that share your own uh, views on everything. I mean, it's fine, but it's it's a little bit, um, it, it becomes a little bit dull, I think. It, yeah. Your life will be much more enhanced by stepping outside of that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've gotten really focused on diversity relative to um, sexual orientation and skin color and even the demographic of, of where one lives and the culture in which they come from. But, but you're right. I mean, you know, uh, this age gap is getting further and further. Um, and, 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 you know, I remember there was this time where young folks couldn't wait to be around folks that were older to, to glean the wisdom and the insight and the experience from them. You know, we, we had this kind of older, wiser level of reverence uh, almost. And today now I feel as though that is so misplaced. And, and I think both sides are, are, are firing uh, rockets, right? I mean, you've got young folks that just have always in some level, and I think it's only magnified thought, you know, oh gosh, he doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. It's, you know, they're old and that's grown in an unhealthy way. But I think that, you know, the, 
unhealthy rockets from the other side of what you said, I thought was so brilliant. This, this almost mocking snowflakes and millennials. And I, I, I get asked the question regularly from CEOs and business professionals, how in the world can we manage these millennials? They just don't get it. They don't care. And we just generalize this entire age group. Um, I, I wonder how right you are that we are failing to communicate um, and failing to, to choose uh, to break through and prevail through this, this blind spot we have relative to someone that might be older or younger than us? Oh, it's definitely very important. The other thing is that, okay, there are some companies that are still thinking that millennials are like super young and not to be uh, critical, but they're not all that young. Many of them are already 40. They have families of their own. They're not little kids. I'm, I'm assuming that you would think that a 40-year-old would be a responsible person, and I don't see why that wouldn't be the case. So it's um, it's important to see uh, individuals as individuals, and especially in the workplace, not to necessarily think that there is a specific management style for people of a specific uh, generational group. It might be the case, but in reality, it's more of a person-by-person -person basis. Some of the people that I know that are the most tech savvy are uh, my mom and many people within her age group. Mm. So I think it's very discriminatory to say, oh, explain this to me as if my, as if you were explaining this to my mom. I would be like, what? I mean, my mom is an architect and she's very computer savvy. So, I mean, it's not like saying, explain this to this ancient individual, right? So it's, it's something that's a little important not to be, you know, mocking uh, toward one age group or toward the other. And the other way around as well, a lot of people are very, very, very young right now, even teenagers right now, and they are fantastically responsible. They're working hard. They're doing their best to get into colleges, especially now that that's becoming even more difficult than in the past because it's more confusing. The process is so much more confusing that we even had situations like the Varsity Blues case. So really, we're talking about a number of people of many different ages that are fantastic at what they do. They're responsible. And I also believe, uh, Titus, that most people live up to whatever expectation you might have. So if you tell somebody, you know, I know that people like you are flaky and I don't think that you're going to be here early and I have serious qualms about promoting you, that's probably what you're going to get out of that employee. Normally yeah. people tend to live up to your um, expectations, I think, or to the reputation they understand themselves to have. What a powerful point, uh, man. What a, the time has flown by. Sandy Rodriguez, her book is Choose to Prevail. Sandy, before we close the show out, what's the best way for folks to get a copy of your book or to connect with you and have you be a part of the equation of their life personally and professionally? Well, if they want to buy the book, although it's available in plenty of places, I think Amazon would be the easiest way to go about it. Choose to Prevail by Sandy Rodriguez. But of course, it's available on pretty much any other platform. I know not everybody likes Amazon per se. They could go on Target.com, Walmart.com, BarnesandNoble.com. There are plenty of other places. But um, also, if they would like to um, get in touch with me, I'm available on Instagram. Uh, the handle is at choose to prevail. Very easy. And I'll be happy to connect with anybody from your audience. This was just wonderful. I love your show. 
Oh, thank you so much. Well, we hope that you'll come back again in the future and keep shining some great insight uh, into the world for us. I would love that. Hey guys, Titus Bartolotta here with Collaborative Solutions Group. I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode of Solutions from the Huddle. If you want to hear more episodes and continue supporting our show, simply search for and subscribe to Solutions from the Huddle on any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you'll join us soon.